0: The splitting of the sea after coming out of Egypt has always been a fascinating subject. Although there's no special holiday commemorating that miracle, it's all absorbed into the seventh day of Pesach. But it is worthy of standing on its own. It's an experience that deserves consideration in its own right. And in fact, it was what inspired the song of Oz Yashir, from which we get, by the way, the only recorded reference to the world to come, to the resurrection, comes from that first verse of the, of the song at the crossing of the sea, where it says, Oz Yashir Moshe, then Moshe sang. But if you read it correctly, The word for saying is written in future tense. Then Moshe will sing, which means that there will come a time yet where Moshe and the people will sing a song of praise to God, and that is referring to or alluding to the resurrection when Moshe will again be our Redeemer. Now, the crossing of the sea, according to Kabbalah, was not merely a survival miracle, that allowed Jews to get away from their enemies and that later drowned the enemy so that they would no longer pursue the Jews, which in itself would be a great miracle and a great cause for celebration, but there is much more to it than that. The splitting of the sea, according to Kabbalah, represents the opening of a heaven that conceals divine truth... And the splitting of that heaven was reflected in the splitting of the water and the people who were present were able to experience and to see godliness and holiness that ordinarily is concealed and hidden from human view. In general, the fact that the earth is divided into dry land and ocean represents the fact that in holiness and in godliness there is the revealed world and there is the concealed world. The revealed world is represented by earth, dry earth, and the concealed world is represented by the world within the ocean. The Gemara says that everything that exists on earth exists in the ocean. The difference, of course, being that on earth everything is visible, And in the ocean, everything is concealed. So the ocean represents a world that is concealed. Earth, dry earth, represents a world that is revealed. The splitting of the sea meant that that which conceals the hidden world was removed, the concealment was removed, and we were able to see the world that is concealed. In other words, the greater truths, the greater realities, which ordinarily are hidden from human view. And that's why the Gemara says that even the maids, the Egyptian maids who accompanied the Jews out of Egypt, saw godliness that even the greatest prophets would not see. But what is this idea that there is a reality that is concealed. The simple explanation, the justification why should reality be concealed? The simple explanation is because the totality of godliness is so infinite and so awesome and so powerful that if we were to see it, it would destroy us. We would be consumed by that godliness and we would no longer be able to exist in our physical form. And so to protect us, God conceals himself. Just as the sun is too much, too hot, too intense for earth, and that's why there needs to be atmospheric levels or layers that absorb some of the heat and cushion the effect of the sun on earth so that we can be warmed by it without being destroyed by it. In the world to come, all this concealment will be removed. We will have become capable of seeing the entire truth without being destroyed by it. And then even physically, the sun's strength will be experienced in its full power without concealment, without the sheath that now protects us from the strength of the sun. That's the simple explanation. To go a bit deeper, what is the purpose of creating human beings, of creating a finite world that cannot contain, that cannot tolerate the full truth of godliness? Why do such a thing in the first place? And then have to protect the earth from the godliness by creating this concealment or this sheath to hide the full truth. Certainly the objective, the long-term goal, is that eventually we do experience the full truth. Certainly this concealment is temporary. It wouldn't make sense any other way. But even temporarily, why should this be necessary? Why should God create a world in such a way that that the concealment would be necessary? In Kabbalah, the concealment of godliness is called tzimtzum. Tzimtzum meaning contraction. God contracts himself. He he draws himself into himself so that there is room for the existence of a finite universe. Which means to say that in God's presence, nothing finite can exist. Because finite, limited, independent identity can't exist, is not possible, within God's presence where God is present, only he exists. Everything else is absorbed into his existence. In order for a finite world to exist, a finite world meaning a world governed by properties other than godliness, because godliness is infinite, and here you have a finite world. So in order for the finite world to have an identity of its own, even if not a reality of its own. But to have an identity of its own, God has to remove himself. God has to leave room for this existence. And that leaving room, that removing of self, is called symptom, contraction. So God contracts himself away from the center, leaving a hole an empty space in the middle, and into this empty space God creates the world with a finite amount of godliness. That's how Kabbalah describes the process of creation. Now, Hasidus comes along, the teachings of Hasidus, Hasidic philosophy, and Hasidic philosophy says that this contraction this withdrawal of godliness is not to be taken literally because God cannot be absent from any space. No place can be devoid of him. And so this contraction, this symptom is not a literal contraction. It is only effective. In, in the perception of the created being. It allows the created being to imagine itself independent, to imagine itself being in a space of its own, but in fact, it is within God, it is all part of God, and nothing really has changed. So that the tzimtzum is only an effect that affects the created being, but it is not in fact a true, literal contraction or absence of God. Well, that explains how God can be everywhere and yet the world exists. Because the world doesn't know that God is everywhere. But that sounds too simplistic and too shallow. If in fact God is everywhere, how can the created being not know him? And the answer is because of symptom. Well, but then the symptom was not literal. So why did it affect the created being and cause the created being to imagine himself independent if in fact there was no contraction and there was no literal symptom, So what is this concealment of God? He isn't really absent, but we Think he's absent. We experience him as being absent. And that's the effect of the symptom. But there was no literal symptom. So God didn't, in fact, leave. He is present. So, what exactly is this symptom? One of the ways to explain it would be this The problem with the world existing is not that God is present. God can be present and the world can exist. The world can be finite even though God is infinite. The problem really comes from the fact that God wants us to be infinite. God wants us to be like Him. God wants us to be godly. And that desire is what denies the physical universe its independence and its freedom. How can the world experience itself? How can the physical world be self conscious when God is present and wants us to be conscious of Him? How can we be the way we are when God wants us to be the way He is? This is not a really a very esoteric subject. This happens in everyday life and in every family. How does a teenager have an identity of its own, of his own or her own, when the parents want them to be like they, like the parents? How do parents raise children who have an identity of their own while living in the home of the parents? So there's always this pull, this tug, this, this conflict Parents want children to be a certain way. How then can children be what they want to be? And so they feel a need to rebel, to reject, to leave, to run away, to move out, to put distance between themselves and their parents. And so if we were to ask advice, how do we raise independent children? Should we basically keep a distance Should we not involve ourselves in children's affairs, in the children's lives? Should we make ourselves scarce so that the children will be independent? Should we not solve their problems? Or should we do the opposite? Should we make them extremely secure in their home, be involved in every part of their lives, solve every problem for them, So that they never experience a moment of insecurity. And then, when the time comes for them to leave home, they will be secure and strong and confident and they will have an identity of their own. Which way to go? And of course, the truth lies someplace in the middle. But what does that mean? It means that you don't have to be absent in order to make your children independent. That can make them more insecure and dependent. And you don't have to be involved in every detail of their lives in order that they be secure and independent. Neither of the two is necessary because the dependence or independence of our children depends only on what our inner, truer will for the children is. Do we really want our children to be independent? then they will be. Do we deep down inside want them to remain dependent? Then that's what's going to happen. Regardless of whether we're very involved, -involved, over-involved, under-involved, that's not what's going to make the difference. What will make the difference is your inner desire. What do you truly want and wish for? If you really enjoy your children's independence, then they will be independent. And if you are frightened by their independence, then they will remain dependent. The tzimtzum that is necessary in creation is that God had to remove his desire to have us be like him. He had to enjoy, desire, and prefer that we be the way we are and serve him with the abilities and the talents that a limited finite human being has that's what the symptom is the symptom does not describe god's presence or absence of course god can't be absent god is everywhere no place can be devoid of him so of course god is present what then is the symptom? The symptom is God does not want us to be him. He wants us to be part of him the way we are. He likes us the way we are. He likes our limited efforts. He takes great pleasure in our imperfect service. He wants human beings to be human. He wants finite beings to be finite. He wants flawed beings to be flawed. And in their finite, flawed, and limited way to serve him. And because that he desires this, because that is his truer inner will, he does not impose himself even while he is present. He doesn't insist that we do things His way. He doesn't expect of us to be Him, to be capable of what He is capable of. And not only is He patient, waiting for us to become infinite, but really prefers us in our finite condition. He takes pleasure in our independence as the Gemara tells the story, that there was a debate among the scholars as to what a halacha is, what the ruling should be in a certain case, and God was asked to intervene, and God offered his opinion, and it was not accepted. Because Torah is not, no longer in heaven, Torah has to be decided on earth. And God said in response to this decision, he said, My children, you have bested me. You win. You're right. And he loved it. He loves us the way we are. And that is the symptom. So when, when it says God removed himself in order to leave room for a finite world, it never meant that he removed his presence. That's not to be taken literally. Literally. What did happen, God removed any desire to have us be him. He doesn't want exclusive existence. He doesn't want us being him. He wants us, the way we are, joining him, becoming part of him. What is the difference between being him and being part of him? It's like the difference between God's oneness Before creation, and God's oneness after creation. Before creation, God was one. There was no one besides him. There was nothing besides him. But this oneness was a oneness that comes from exclusivity. Because nothing else existed, God was the only one. Because no one else existed, only he was. So, by excluding all other existences, God is one. But that, in Hebrew, is called yachid. Only. When God created the world and then gave us the mitzvahs, gave us the Torah, instructing us how we can become united with Him, when this union happens, then again, God will be one. But not the way he was one before creation. Then he was yachid. When the world becomes one with God, and then on that day God will be one and his name will be one, then he will be echad, not yachid. And the difference is immense. There is oneness that comes from excluding everything else. And there is a oneness that comes by including everything else. If God insisted that we be him, then he would be one through the process of exclusion. There is nothing else. There is no other form of existence, and so he is everything. But he is also the only thing. The oneness that God desires, the oneness that will be achieved when on that day God will be one and his name will be one, This is a oneness that is inclusive. This is an echad. Echad is the aleph that represents God, the ches, number eight, that represents the seven heavens and earth, and the dalid, the number four that represents the four sides, the four directions of the earth. And when you put it all together into one word, then you have echad, you have a oneness that is inclusive, not exclusive. So God wants us to be one with him, but not by being him, by being ourselves, and ourselves and he are merged into a oneness. But in order for that to happen, he has to enjoy, he has to take pleasure in the identity that we have, as puny and as insignificant as it might be. And so when God gives us mitzvahs, he tells us that he expects of us to do our best, even though our best is not nearly in any way similar to his best, because God enjoys our finiteness like a parent, like a father, enjoys the child as a child, not only because he will someday become an adult. And that's why the Torah says, Israel is a child, and I love him. Israel is not the oldest nation. Israel is not the greatest in size or in number. Israel is like a child. It's like the David against the Goliath. And it's precisely that smallness, it's precisely that young and helpless condition that God takes pleasure in. He wants to be our father, not only our king. And a father takes pleasure in a child. A king does not. A king deals with adults. You have to be a certain age to vote. You have to be a certain age to serve in the army. That's when the king finds you useful. But a father takes great pleasure in a child, even when the child is helpless, even when the child is of no service. And that is the greatest pleasure of the parent. And so even though we are, in fact, tiny beings of no significance whatsoever. We are useless in the, in the comparison to our Creator. We are powerless, as we say in, in the davening every morning. What is our strength? What is our wisdom? What is our fame? It's nothing. It's nothing at all. And yet this is what God desires. In God's infinite greatness, He finds pleasure and He finds meaning In things that are meaningless when you measure by a finite standard. The distance between an infinite creator and a finite being is so great that it should be unbridgeable. We should not be significant to our creator. We should not be a delight to our creator. We should not be noticed by our creator because we have nothing to offer. We are tiny. And yet, because God is truly infinite, the infinity that separates us is itself insignificant to him. True infinity means you don't have to be great. True infinity means you don't have to be immense. True infinity means nothing is too small to be noticed. Nothing is too small to be significant. And only to a truly infinite being is this possible. So the splitting of the sea meant that there came a moment when God wanted us to see Him the way He really is. To take away that concealment where God doesn't want us to be Him, wants us to be us. But we didn't know this because all of that is concealed. And because God doesn't impose himself on us and doesn't demand that we live by his standards, we could easily come to the mistaken conclusion that really God does want us to be like him. It's just going to take a long time. That God doesn't like us the way we are. He's just hoping that we'll change. And here we're about to receive the Torah, we're about to meet with God at the foot of Mount Sinai, and God is going to tell us something, and we probably expected to hear from God, you've got to stop being human, you've got to stop being so small. And so God revealed himself at the splitting of the sea. And what did we see? Very possibly what we saw was the pleasure that God had in our humanness. That's what was revealed. That's what we saw. That God, in fact, doesn't want us to be infinite. He wants us to be finite. He wants us to be flawed. He wants us to be capable of mistakes. He wants us to be as fragile and as fickle and as tiny as we are. But in this tininess, to give whatever we have to Him, to devote whatever talents we have to Him, whatever devotion we have, whatever faith we have, whatever trust we have, we should invest them all in Him. And although they are all tiny, we have a tiny amount of faith, we have a tiny amount of trust, we have a tiny amount of love, a tiny amount of wisdom, But if we devote it all to him, this gives him infinite pleasure. And so before we receive the Torah, where God is going to make all sorts of demands, going to tell us what he really wants, his inner will, his desire, his needs, and we thought we would be overwhelmed and incapable unless we too became infinite. So at the splitting of the sea, God let us in on the secret. He really loves us the way we are. He really gets pleasure from us precisely because we are not infinite, precisely because we are not omnipotent, precisely because we are not Him. That's why He can have a relationship with us, and it's a two-way relationship, because we have an identity, we have freedom of choice, and we choose Him to be our God. That's what gives Him pleasure. And that was the splitting of the sea, revealing what the Tzimtzum conceals. Shalom Aleichem, how are you? You know I do a lot of talking, a lot of Zooming, many classes, many subjects. But that's all formal stuff. Hopefully good stuff, but formal. We also have a Wednesday night meeting that's more informal and kind of um, Hamish. If you want to join us for that kind of an event, um, interactive, time for questions and so on, if you want to join us for this side of conversation, click on the link below and join us every Wednesday night at nine o'clock well maybe not every Wednesday night, but we try to make it every Wednesday night at 9 o'clock, a more informal chat, which uh, can be more enjoyable at times than the formal stuff. So check it out, click on the link and join us. Try it, you'll like it.